0: Kenny has asked me to open with uh, chapter one of Matthew, which is the tongue twister of all. So let's go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. (coughs) Dramatic pause. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile, <clears throat> and f- to the exile in Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. This is the Lord of the Lord.
1: Amen. Let's give it up for Joanna. I had to hurry that because I didn't want to. No. I was- No, um, I did warn. I did warn her though, a a little bit in advance. Hey, are you sure you want to read this? This is a lot of names, and uh, she did excellent at that. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. If I haven't met yet, my name's Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, We are talking about Christmas and about Advent um, this week, and um, you know. it was really fun watching just like eyes glaze over as Joanna read through that uh, long list of names called the genealogy, going back through the family tree of Jesus. And um, genealogies, I don't know if you guys are, are guilty of uh, if you've been reading your Bible and you just kind of skim past that part um, or like skip down to the, the action, to the good stuff. Anyone going to admit that with me? Yeah. You know, if you're in the Old Testament, it's like, I can't even pronounce that name. I don't know who he was. I'm skipping past that. But here's the thing. Genealogies um, actually were very interesting to um, to ancient people. They meant a lot to them. And I think as we look at this today, it's going to mean a lot to us. I know. I mean, we, we know. Um, we get information. We... we are interested in our genealogy, some of it through, like, DNA testing or stuff like that. You guys hear about that, um, what is this, the Golden State Killer who got caught because of Ancestry DNA online? You guys heard about that? This guy that was, they he was—they didn't catch him for 30 or 40 years, Uh murderer and a rapist, and they caught him through other family members. I don't know if he had ever given his DNA online, but they caught him through that. Um, so, we at least find value in that when it comes to family trees. Um, I know for me, um, I'm redheaded, and that means that everyone assumes that I'm Irish, <laughs> all the time. And, but here's the thing: I didn't know anything about my family tree, and I had heard that I was English, and even like even some Native American too, um, which no one ever believes because I'm so white. But um, but whenever people say, "Oh, are you Irish?" I see your red head, I'm be like, "No, I'm fake Irish because I'm." I'm not, but then it was like a St. Patrick's Day parade like five or seven years ago. I was hanging out with my sister, and she had been talking to my aunt, and she was like, hey, I found out that we're Irish. <laughs> for real. The first Lyles was Lyle from Ireland, and that sounds Irish, right? Lyle, right? And so, yeah, I got, interest. I mean, I got interested in genealogies uh, for that, but what we're going to look at today, believe it or not, is these first 17 verses. Of the New Testament, and like I said, we're in Advent, which means uh, coming or arrival, and it's where Christians celebrate Christmas. We we do celebrate that Jesus was born, but we're not just celebrating his birthday. We're we're celebrating his coming or his arrival because we believe that um, that Jesus existed before he was born, that he is the Word made flesh. Like that song we the first song we sing, Word of the Father Now in Flesh Appearing, that, that God is eternally, that Jesus is eternally existent, second person in the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with God, and yet he came to earth and launched a divine rescue mission, as N.T. Wright says. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We remember the coming of Jesus. And as, um, as we go into today's uh, passage The message that I think we're going to see and that I want to highlight is that in Christmas, we receive, uh, I want to talk about four things that are revealed. A promise, grace, reality, and a name. A promise, grace, reality, and a name. So you guys ready to go? All right, I always like to ask, because if you're not ready... I'm still going to go, but I'd like to ask just in case. All right, so first of all, we see a promise in this passage. Um, Probably the main point of the whole genealogy is summed up in that first verse where it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's the point. Jesus, right off the bat, he's saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, and that word means the anointed one, and it's someone that the Jews had been waiting for and waiting for and hoping for and not knowing where this king, this ruler who was going to come and rescue and make things right, they didn't know where he was going to come from, and Matthew, right off the bat, first line of the New Testament says, Jesus is it. Jesus is the promise that God made, it's fulfilled in him. Don't miss it because he's different than you expect. And Matthew says this in a few ways. Um, the next phrase there, he says, son of David, son of Abraham. Um, basically what he's saying is he's linking Jesus to these people through that line, through this genealogy. This is the line that shows you um, Jesus' family tree. But first of all, David. David is Israel's, was, uh, Israel's greatest king. Ever. Um, but there's a promise that was given to David that there would always be from his family. There would be someone from his family who would rule on the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16, and, and all throughout the Old Testament, it's called the Davidic Covenant. It's this covenant that God gave to David that the Messiah is going to come through your line. So Matthew says, Jesus is the son of David. And then he says, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Well, there was another covenant made with Abraham. And it's actually the covenant that helps us make sense of the whole Bible. And it's in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where uh, God had promised to Abraham when he had no children, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And through you, I'm going to bless all peoples in the whole world. All nations are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. So right in the first line, Matthew is reminding us of this. God always keeps his promises. Can I get an amen? amen? God always keeps his promises. But before we go any further, you got to notice this. Sometimes God takes a long time to keep his promise. I'm talking hundreds of years since David was around, I'm talking thousands. Of years since the promise was given to Abraham. And yet, he kept his promise in Jesus. And you got to think of this. During history, it didn't look like it was moving toward him keeping his promise. You know, you might think, okay, well, they would know ahead of time God's at work. But did you know that there were no prophets for the 400 years leading up to Jesus' birth? So the people of God... they. Maybe they were anticipating, but they weren't hearing from God. It didn't seem like it was building up. You know what? They knew they had been punished and put in exile because of their sins, and many of the Jews in Jesus' day still believed we're still technically in exile. Even though we're back to our land, we're under the power of the Roman rule. It doesn't look like God's keeping his promise at all, and yet he did. And when Jesus came not only was he the messiah he was a better messiah than any of them could ever have imagined they expected a ruler who would come liberate them politically and rule but he'd probably only rule for a few years and then die like everyone does (laughs) but they got a ruler who doesn't rule just one nation and who doesn't just save the jews but he rules all kingdoms and he is here to save the whole earth he's a light to the gentiles as well amen and he's not just ruling for a few years he's ruling in eternity. Here's why this is good for us today to keep this in mind uh, personally and to keep it in mind corporately in the world that we live in. God always keeps his promises, but it's almost never on your timetable. God, quiet. God is never late. How many know that? but he's rarely early. (laughs) He's always on time. Thank you, Liz. Amen corner right here. We got to remember that. If we're judging God by our calendars, it's almost never going to go well, and we're going to get bent out of shape. But let this promise be a reminder to us that God keeps his promise. Again, God keeps his promises even when it doesn't look like he's working on it. Anyone ever been there? That person's there right now. (laughs) God keeps his promises even if it doesn't look like he's working on it right now. And God keeps his promises, and when he does, it's way better than you ever asked for or imagined. Anyone ever felt that? You ever seen the Christmas story? Ralphie wants his gun? Yeah, that's what he hears, right? But when God keeps his promises... It's better than that morning when you finally get your official Red Ryder carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass and a thing that tells time. (laughs) It's better than that. It's more joyful than that when God keeps his promises. And I got to ask before we go any further, are you remembering that? Where is it in your life, the promise that you're holding on to from God that it doesn't seem like he's working out? Where is it that you're judging him by your timetable and what you expected to already be done now in your life or where you thought you would be or where you thought God had told you you would be by now, but you're not? Where do you need to hear that God's still at work keeping his promise? Where do you need to hear that, where do you need to believe that when he delivers his promise, it's gonna be better than what you imagined? Beyond that, far beyond that. hmm Christmas reminds us that we Christians have so much hope because God, what He began in the gospel, He will complete. And what He began in you, in your life, He will finish it. God doesn't leave unfinished work. Amen? Amen. So that's the first verse. We're going to spend about 10 minutes per verse. Just kidding. All right. What's the rest of the genealogy tell us? So we see this promise. Secondly, we see uh, grace that is revealed. And, and um, let's, let's look at that for a second. So like I said earlier, most of us are, will you be honest with me, we're kind of bored with the genealogies most of the time. I mean, sometimes they're really interesting if you really want to get in down and study the, the nitty-gritty. But most of the time, it's kind of boring. Um, but to them in the society, it meant a whole lot, and um, I think the way we can think about it is every society has a way that you commend yourself to other people. Every every society has a way to say, uh, this is who I am, and um, think of it in terms of our society, it's your resume, right? So if you're going to let someone else know who you are, if you want to get a job or if you want to get into a school, you have a resume, right? And you tell them, you know your name and all that stuff. But then you tell them where you studied or who you studied with or what you accomplished at work or what kind of projects you worked on or or where you went to school or um, we all tracking, right? So, but in ancient society, so our our society is really individualistic and that works because it's built on our achievements. But in ancient societies and even in a lot of societies around the world today, um, uh, people thought it was and think that it was um, a better judge of your character, not just to know what you've done, but to know your family and to know who your family is and are, are they honorable people and are they people of character? And, you know, what, what's your genealogy? What's your, uh, where do you come from? Who are you? What's your group? And a lot of people think that's a better gauge of your character. So in a way, this genealogy is kind of like a resume of Jesus that's saying this is who Jesus is. If you want to know what he's about, where he's from, who his family is, this is um, who he is. And like, like us, you know, with resumes, how many know that you want, only want to put the things you're proud of on your resume, right? And then there's a few other things where it's like, ah, oh, that doesn't have to go on there. No, uh, They don't need that reference. Um, I'd prefer them not to call them, whatever it may be. All right, well, they did that, too. There's genealogies where people would take people off the list. There's examples in history of uh, Herod the Great, who is the ruler uh, over Judea when Jesus is born. You hear of him in Matthew 2. He's the one who sent the massacre of of all the babies, right? Um, But he was ruling over Jewish people, but he was half uh, Edomite, Edomaean. And he didn't want people to know about that. He didn't want people to bring it up in his face. He actually burned the official genealogies to take the names he didn't want out of his list. Talk about like scorched earth, like policy with with your resume here. Um, But the, the, the purpose of it is to impress other people like this is who I'm associated with. This is who my family is. This is where I come from. But the interesting thing is this, is that Matthew, when he writes Jesus' genealogy, he does the opposite. He, in, he includes a lot of people that weren't necessarily included in genealogies of the day. So let's look at that a little bit. First of all, he includes uh, five women on this list of a genealogy. And we don't think that's very odd, but in a patriarchal society, that was pretty odd. It was very rare that a woman would be on a genealogy. You would put the man, you would put the father, you would put the person who's the head of the family, who has the wealth or did the accomplishments or whatever it was in that day. You wouldn't put the woman. But Jesus has not one or two or three, but five women in his genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course, Mary. So you've got, from the, right off the bat, you've got people who are gender outsiders, basically in this day, that are included in Jesus' family. But then you look at the women who are included, and several of them are Gentiles. They're not Jewish. So Tamar is a Gentile. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, uh, do Canaanites and Moabites and Israelites really mix together that great? No. (laughs) Actually, uh, to the ancient Jews, people from these nations were considered unclean and not allowed to the tabernacle, not allowed in temple worship, excluded. So you've got Um, people who are outsiders because of their gender. You've got people who are racial outsiders and religious outsiders. And then there's even another level because the names that are mentioned, they bring to mind some of the most immoral stories and parts of the Old Testament. Tamar, for instance, she had been wronged by her father-in-law, Judah, but in Genesis 38, if you read it, she also, she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could have boys, the twins that are mentioned here. So that's a story of incest, which everywhere throughout the Bible is against God's law. Rahab was a prostitute. And yet, and just think with me for a second. These are the people you don't want to put on your resume, right? (laughs) You want to show I'm from the best stock. This is the Messiah we're talking about. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham. But he's also the son of these people. He's the son of these mothers. He's the son of these outsiders. They didn't have to be named, but they get included on purpose in the family tree of Jesus. Why list them? Because you're owning them. You might even say that Jesus is proud of them. These people are going to tell you who I am and what I'm about and why I'm here and why I came. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the promise to the Jews, but he's also here to be the savior of the world. He's here to reconcile those who are estranged. He's here to welcome in those who have been excluded. Those who are excluded by culture. Those who are excluded by respectable society. Those who get looked down on. Those who are even excluded by the law of God can be brought in to Jesus family. Amen? Amen. Hang out there for a second. It doesn't matter what you've done. It, It doesn't matter if you're from the wrong side of the tracks. It doesn't matter if everyone always looked down on you. Jesus wants you in his family. Jesus wants to bring you into his family by grace. If you reach out to him and believe and receive this grace. But it also gives us a clue to something else. If you look in the next verse, verse 5 and 6, it says, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember, she's the prostitute and the Moabite. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. King David. Again, there's someone that everyone wants on their resume, right? Right? <laughs> You're writing a genealogy in this day, and you you can actually say, king, I'm from the line of King David. That's awesome, right? That's like, I went to Harvard and Yale and what? Princeton. Princeton yeah, all three. <laughs> because David is, um, it, it, like you said, he's Israel's greatest king. He's He's a warrior. He's a valiant warrior. He's a poet. He's a warrior, poet, he he loves God, He he didn't build up the Asherah poles, he didn't worship the other gods, he is religiously upright, he writes the Psalms, if you've read the Psalms, you've read some of David's work. But do you see what it said there, right with David on the same line? David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Some people call that one of the greatest ironic understatements of the Bible. Um, Because you notice it doesn't name the woman. She has a name. It's Bathsheba. And she's named here not as a slam to her, but as a slam to David. Because in that one line, Matthew is reminding us of the story of David that as great as he was and amazing as he was and such a great leader, he had sins too. It says that um, uh, Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. David saw Bathsheba and wanted her and fell in love with her and had adultery with her, committed adultery with her. She was married to Uriah, who was one of the most senior trusted soldiers that David had had from his beginning days. And he cheated With her. And then to cover it up, he ordered the death of Uriah. So David committed adultery and murder. He added to it. Here's what it's saying to us even as great as David is, he too can be in Jesus' family only by grace. Not by what he did. Not by what he did for the kingdom. Not by how respected he was and how great people thought it was. You see that his deeds are worse than any of the other deeds that I listed earlier. King David is on the same level as the prostitute that I mentioned. Neither one is allowed in to worship God. But they are allowed in Jesus' family by sheer grace. That means when it comes to being in Jesus' family, it's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. Do I need to say that again? <laughs> it's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. It's not the upright people who have everything together who are in and then we get to look down on the people who are out. That's not how it works. We are only in this family of Jesus by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's only what Jesus has done for you that can give you right standing before God. There's a quote from Timothy Calvary He says it this way. There's no one, not even the greatest human being, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance and faith. The down and out don't deserve spiritual blessing, don't deserve eternal life, don't deserve to be reconciled with God, but neither do the up and out. It's only by God's grace. We're not admitted by our performance, we're admitted by His grace. Not our credentials, not our pedigree, not what we've done for God. You guys with me? only by his grace. That's why we say here all the time, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's why we say there's no perfect people allowed at the church, in the church. That's why when someone says, I don't want to come to church, it's full of hypocrites. We can say, we're not full of hypocrites, we've got room for more. (laughs) Always got room for more. <laughs> How amazing is God's grace that we have not even left the first page of the first book of the New Testament. And it's bursting at the seams with this message of you can be part of God's family. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to include those who, aren't, who are excluded. And I came to bring in those who think they're in and show them grace. Amen. What does this mean for you and I today? It means the church ought to be the place that welcomes insiders, uh, outsiders, (laughs) and insiders and outcasts. The church ought to be the place that welcomes the down and out and the up and out. The categories that matter so much to the world, to our world, to our culture, to San Diego our pedigree, our money, our race, our class, our gender. The things that are used so often to divide us and label us and separate us ought not to mean as much in here.
0: Yeah.
1: We ought to see each other primarily as brothers and sisters in God's family. As, as uh, <laughs> Vince talks about, one, one beggar leading another beggar to bread with the grace of God. I've found grace. Here's grace. Here's what else it means. Every society has a way of deciding who's in and who's out, who gets included and who is beyond, who they're beyond grace. They're beyond my pity. They're beyond I can't even interact with them. But if we get into Jesus' family by receiving his grace that changes the way we look at other people. That that means you need to ask yourself, who is out in my book? It could be all sorts of things. Is it people from a different uh, uh, social status? Is it people who have different uh, political views than me? Is it different? Who are the people that they don't deserve your respect? Because if you believe in God's grace, they do deserve your respect they do deserve to be treated with love, even if you wholeheartedly disagree with them, even if you're from completely different backgrounds. Amen? Amen. God forbid that we have been led in by grace and then uh, proceed to make others try to earn that same grace. Amen. 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 How are we doing on time? Let's see. I don't know how I'm doing. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> God reveals a promise. God reveals grace. Uh, next thing, God reveals reality. That's what we see in Christmas. You guys ever feel like there's like two Christmases going on every year? There's like a, if you're a believer, there's, a, there's like a Christian Christmas or Advent. There's where we, we kind of gather around these truths that Jesus came uh, in real life to be with us, and he's God with us, like we talked about last week, and it's amazing, and we sing oh Holy Night, and all these other things, and then there's a there's more of a kind of a cultural Christmas, or a sentimental Christmas, where um, it's not really about that stuff, it's more like, I don't know, we're like celebrating winter, or snow, I mean, not, not here in San Diego, but uh, it's holly jolly, there's silver bells, there's... Uh, Gifts. There's traditions that kind of make us feel happy, and um, it is a brighter season. um, But in a few weeks, I want you to think about. In a few weeks after December 25th, I don't know if it's going to be on the 26th or, you know, if you're lazy and you wait till New Year's or whatever. I don't know. um, Just kidding. I'm not calling anyone lazy. You're gonna you're gonna throw away the wrapping paper, right? And you're going to start to clean up. You're going to put the tree up. You're going to pull the lights down. You're going to pack everything away. And just around us, culturally, it's going to be darker. Just naturally, it's not, there's not going to be LEDs everywhere. Like, we're not going to have that brightness. Um, the gloss uh, of the sentimental Christmas is going to fade away, and we'll think about doing it next year. But the, the message of the Christian Christmas, the Advent, actually make some really bold claims that go beyond just this season. Real talk. The world is pretty dark. Anyone there? Anyone, anyone know that? And even more real talk than that, or on a bigger meta level than that, go here with me for a second, death awaits us all. We're getting real dark. Um, But it does. Death awaits us all. And if you don't ever think about it, you're fooling yourself. If you think you're going to escape it, because the odds are pretty good that you won't. (laughs) Judging by human history. (laughs) And if if you want to get real sad, you think about everyone you love. Everyone you love will eventually be taken away from you whether by time or by death <laughs> i didn't think this would spark that much laughter but it's all right it's all right also we groan for justice it seems like every we don't have to look far at all nowadays to see oppression in all sorts of forms we Yearn for it. And so, yeah, sentimental Christmas is nice, and it's happy, and it's great. But I'm t- the reason I'm here today speaking, the reason I come here and preach is not for that. It's because we face real things, and we face real darkness. But Christianity actually claims that in Jesus Christ, the light of the world has come. That, that death has been defeated and will one day be no more. That, that there's a love that goes beyond death. That we will experience a love that will never end and will never have to part from. And we'll never lose. And that justice will be given once and for all. That no evil deed that we watch go unpunished nowadays will, will actually be unpunished. And that everything that is wrong will be made right. And that's why we sing, Change shall he break. For the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. For the Christian, those not empty words, and here's why it's so amazing, because that's what our soul longs for most, whether you're a Christian or not. You long for it. That's why you read stories about it. That's why the best stories you can think of all have things like that. People who get beyond death and and live, or or people who, who have a love that never, ever ends, or... Here's my point. Christmas says that these things are not pie in the sky, but they're actually going to take place. Your soul's deepest longings will be met and have already begun to be met in Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of that in this passage today. How? Because it doesn't start with once upon a time. It doesn't say, once upon a time there was a sweet baby Jesus. No, it says, this is the genealogical record of Jesus Christ. And he is the Messiah. <laughs> Not once upon a time, but he was born in a real place. It's grounded in real life. He was born in Bethlehem. We know where that is. These are his parents. These were his brothers. This is his genealogy. This is his family tree. And this is why we say, like I said a few weeks ago, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's not good advice about where Jesus came and said, hey, here's how you find God. I'm a great prophet. I'm going to show you the way to find God. No, he said, here, I am God come to find you. And here is the good news. Chain shall he break and all oppression will cease. Where there is darkness, there will be light and the darkness cannot overcome light will not overcome light has not overcome light it's not saying here's what needs to happen but he's saying here's what happened and it's not told by fancy storytellers it's told by eyewitnesses second peter 1:16 i believe that I have the verse here peter the apostle One of the closest friends and followers of Jesus said this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't make up a fancy little story so you could feel better. We were eyewitnesses of what God did, and this is what he did. And if you look at the early church, it's eyewitnesses. It's people like Paul who were out to defeat the church and and punish and kill Christians who, when he meets Jesus Christ, completely does a 180 and becomes one of the foremost Christian leaders in history, planting churches all over the known world. It's people like the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, Who became one of the foremost leaders of the first century church? Let me ask you, if you want to convince someone that you're God in the flesh, are you going to start with your sibling? Mic drop, right? It's like, but, but James, the brother of Jesus, not only worships Jesus, but leads others in worshiping Jesus. Jesus probably had him in a headlock at one point, like when they were kids. And yet, I made that up, but it's likely. <laughs> but now he's, he has seen something firsthand in Jesus that is so amazing that this is Jesus. And yes, it's okay to worship him because he's God in the flesh. And he came, but he died, and he rose again. Reality entered History in the form of Jesus Christ, and so when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about an idea. We're not talking about uh, think about this great philosophy that Jesus introduced. We're talking about a person, flesh and blood, who came and who showed us what God is like, and lived a perfect life on our behalf, and died the death we deserve so that we could have life. Amen. So Christmas reveals to us reality and. My last point, Christmas reveals to us a name. We talked about God keeping his promises. Almost never on our timetable. But we are encouraged that he is keeping his promises. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us deserve to be here as recipients of God's grace. It's only by His grace and goodness that we've received, nothing that we've earned or could ever pay back. And the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not telling us what to do in order to earn it. It's telling us what God did. The last thing that I want to mention today is that Jesus wants to give you a name. We read a long list of names. I don't know how many there are. I didn't count them. But it's a long list of names. And we're here reading them today, talking about them. But think about this. I want you to think about your name and where your name will be in 100 years. What will happen to your name? You know, it's likely that your great-grandchildren might not even know your first name. Maybe Maybe if you... Uh, write an influential book, or you lead a a nation or something like that, then maybe people will remember your name for a little while. But most of us, our name is going to pass away not long after we pass away, and it'll eventually be forgotten. But when I look at these names that we're reading today, they passed away, and they died. They all died thousands of years ago, but their names have lived on. Their names are still alive, and they'll keep on living, and we'll keep on reading them. Why? Because they're identified with Jesus gospel says in Jesus, only in Jesus, are you going to get a name that will last. You get a new identity that will last and will be forever and will not perish away, but that you will be with him forever. How? Not by what you can muster up for him, not by what you can achieve for him and work for him all the days of your life, but by what he's done for you. Though he was the inmost insider at the right hand of the Father, all glory in heaven. And yet he set it aside to come down and become an outsider and to be outcast, to be born in the cold and the dark in a manger in a no-name town to a poor family, born an outsider and died outside the city of Jerusalem to bring us in. He fulfilled the promise, not just when he came to be born, but when he came to die. For all our sin and shame. He was willing. Even though it, none of it belonged to him. He was willing to take it on. And be publicly shamed on the cross. And humiliated. So that he could forgive us. And bring us in. And ultimately so he could call us brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2 says this. I have the verse here. 2.10 and 11. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God. For whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And when you don't reject Jesus, but you receive his grace and you repent from your sins and you turn toward him and say, I want life in you. I don't want life my own way, on my own terms, by my own rules, but I want your life and on your terms, by your rules and in your presence. When you say that, when you live that way, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother and sister. He's proud to welcome you in to his family. John 1, 11 says, He came to that which, his own, which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again on the third day to give you a new name that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and so loving. God, we thank you for your word that proclaims to us, even in the um, in-between areas, even in the areas that often seem odd or funny to us, your word is full of life and you're teaching us your grace and your goodness, God, I pray that we would have hearts to receive that. I pray for those that are here today. If there's someone here who is seeking you and longing for you and and faith is rising in their hearts, I pray that they would turn to you right now, God. That they would turn from sin, turn from living on their own terms and, and living in rebellion against you and, and turn to you, God, to receive your forgiveness in your life. And God, I pray for those of us who have known that life and have tasted that grace, God, that we would be reminded, Lord, that the reason you included us by your grace is so that we could extend that grace to other people. Not so people could continue to rebel, but so people could be renewed. And find new life. And find the the same hope that we found, God. The way you've radically changed our lives. God, I pray that you would renew people left and right today in that grace. God, I pray that if, if your goodness and your grace has become stale to us, Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit that you would renew us. God, we need it. We need a fresh touch from you, God. God, in these next few weeks as our world celebrates and as we celebrate, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be on fire because of this message, this truth, God, that you came to keep promises, to bring us your grace, to show us true reality beyond the darkness, and to give us a name that won't won't fade away, an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade away. We thank you, God. We trust in you. We lean on you right now. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen.